0: Matthew chapter 3, we begin in verse 13. This is the account now of the baptism of Christ. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you would go forward to Matthew chapter 17. We have the account here in the beginning of the chapter of the transfiguration of Christ. We'll begin in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him." And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And then Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. We'll read a section here pertaining to the birth of Christ. Beginning in verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 14. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to these readings from his word for his namesake. I'll take as my text, although I'll be referring to each one of these settings, but in Matthew 3, in verse 17, we have this word from God the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The three portions of Scripture we have read have something in common. They each focus on Christ and they each contain testimonies from heaven. Except for the book of Revelation, much of which takes place in heaven, it isn't often in the New Testament that we hear voices from heaven. And the very fact that we have the record of such voices certainly indicates to us that such testimonies ought to be very carefully considered. Testimonies that come from earthbound men, especially earthbound sinners, may be tainted and therefore untrustworthy, but testimonies coming from heaven come from a much purer source where holiness reigns, thus making them all the more trustworthy. This is not to say, however, and I don't want to be misunderstood here, as if to suggest that some parts of the Bible are purer than other parts. Uh, Not at all. The only point I'm wishing to make here is that when we have testimonies coming from heaven, they ought to be very carefully attended to. In the first two passages we just read, we hear the voice of God the Father from heaven His testimony is the same in each instance. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The third passage contains the voice of angels and opens to us the glory of heaven and provides for us a glance into what heavenly worship looks like. These angels bear testimony to the truth that the child born in Bethlehem was the Messiah. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, a single angel says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. That's followed by a multitude of angels that sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's in verse 14. And two out of the three of these instances, you could say that apart from the heavenly testimonies, there would have been nothing perceivable to the fleshly eye to suggest that Jesus was the Messiah. In one instance, the instance of his baptism, Christ would have appeared to simply be one in the crowd. Nothing about him that would have made him stand out from others in that crowd. One of the many who had been drawn to John to be baptized, so it would appear. In the instance of his birth, he would have appeared to be nothing more than a baby born to poor parents that found themselves in desperate circumstances. It is true that by the time of his transfiguration... He had demonstrated himself to be the Messiah by many miracles that he performed. It is also true that the time of his transfiguration follows Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah. But the Gospels show us how often the faith of Christ's disciples wavered. In one instance, they're affirming their belief in Christ, in the next instance, It's as if they show doubts. So in the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are given a double dose, as it were, of evidence to vindicate the identity of Jesus Christ. They behold him in his glory, and they hear the voice of God the Father testifying again that this was his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. Now I believe that the purpose behind these heavenly testimonies is the same for you and me as it was for those who heard them firsthand. However men may scoff and mock and deny Christ, God would have us know that this same Jesus has been that, that has been given, has upon him the stamp of approval from heaven. You could say that Christ's identity has been certified by the highest authorities in all the universe. And I call your attention to these heavenly testimonies this morning because each of them, considered in their particular historical setting, has bearing upon the way we should remember Christ around his table. May the Lord grant us then ears to hear and hearts to heed these heavenly testimonies. If I could give the message a title this morning, it would be simply this, The Substance, Settings, and Significance of Heaven's Testimony Concerning Christ. Did you get that? The substance, settings, and significance of heaven's testimony concerning Christ. Let's think first of all then on the substance of heaven's testimony. At the baptism of Christ and on the Mount of Transfiguration, we hear the testimony from God himself that Jesus is his Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Such a testimony certifies to us that Jesus of Nazareth is certainly no ordinary person. He was and is a man. Indeed, one of his favorite designations for himself was the Son of Man, and that is a title, I might point out, that not only places emphasis on the humanity of Christ, but it also places emphasis on him being an exalted man. Reference, cross-reference you to the book of Daniel to make that point. The account of his birth that we've already referenced in Luke's gospel indicates that he was a man, and that he possessed a true body and a reasonable soul, but he was and is also the Son of God. And our salvation depends on both. We need a Savior. We need a high priest. We need a mediator to be both man and God. We see from the epistle to the Hebrews that it was essential for Christ to be a man. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. We read in Hebrews 5 and verse 1. In order to represent men as a priest, he must be a man himself. On the other hand, in order to accomplish the work that was given to him to do, he must be more than just a man. He must be God. And this is especially true with regard to the sacrifice he would make of himself. No mere man, you see, could endure what Christ would endure on Calvary's cross heaven's justice and hell's cruelty would combine together to unleash upon him a force that would crush any mere mortal. The imagery of God's wrath unleashed upon him is given to us in the words of of Zechariah, chapter 13 and verse 7, where we read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Here, then, is the sword of God's justice being unleashed upon his fellow or his son. This, combined with the forces of hell that become evident by the cruelty of his hell-inspired rejectors are unleashed upon him during the time of his passion. We sometimes refer to this as the passive obedience of Christ. Though I hasten to point out that Christ was not merely passive in enduring these cruel sufferings. His ability to outlive and outlast these combined forces until at last he could Yield himself to death following his announcement that his work was finished, all of that was necessary in order to accomplish our salvation. So heaven testifies that he is the Son of God. That testimony would be vindicated as well by his resurrection from the dead. Paul writes in Romans 1 and verse 4, that he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The evidence of who he is and what he's accomplished in satisfying God's justice is declared then by his resurrection. But would you, note, would you notice also that these testimonies from heaven say something else about Jesus. Not only that he was God's son, but that he was his beloved son. His beloved son in whom God was well pleased. Such a testimony from heaven certainly magnifies the grace of God in salvation. It reveals us, you see, the satisfaction or the delight that God the Father had always had in his Son. The design behind creation and the design behind salvation was never meant to fill some kind of void in the heart of God. God would be none the poorer without us, Especially would he be none the poorer in allowing sinful rebels to receive their just due. Nor would he be any less loving. For he's always had his son, and his son has always been sufficient as the reciprocal object of his love. The father has always loved the son. The son has always loved the father. The love between them both has always been a perfectly satisfactory love. The point being then that there was no void in God's heart that made it essential or necessary for him to design and execute a plan of salvation. In order to magnify the glory of His grace. That's the design. And you find that emphasized especially in the first epistle, or first, there's only one, in the epistle to the Ephesians. The next time you read through chapter 1 in Ephesians, pay attention to that phrase, to the glory of His grace three times you will find that phrase or something very similar to it, indicating that the purpose behind salvation was for God to glorify His grace in sending His Son to die for our sins. So heaven testifies that He's the Son of God. Heaven testifies that He's God's beloved Son. We may note as well that Heaven testified to the truth of his perfect obedience. From the day of his birth to the day of his baptism, he rendered perfect obedience to the law of his Father, so much so that the voice from heaven could say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Had there been any taint of sin in him at all, in anything he did, in any word he spoke. Had there been the least stain of sin, that testimony could not have been given by his father. And from the time of his baptism to the time of his transfiguration, nearly three years later... He continued to render perfect obedience to his Father. Only now his obedience is even more impressive, for it's rendered in the midst of many trials and temptations and provocations. And in the midst of the many attempts to trip him up in his words, he continued to render perfect obedience. When his work was attributed to the devil, he continued to obey his father. When his own disciples would sorely try his patience by their slowness to believe, he would nevertheless continue to obey. And so his father would say again in the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased the time that he spent walking this world, he never sinned in word, thought, or deed, or in motive. Had he sinned, had he been tripped up, that testimony could not have been given by his father. And from the time of the transfiguration to the time of his death up to and including his death, he would continue to render that perfect obedience so much so that the grave would not be able to keep him, but he would rise from the dead and thus declare by his resurrection that his life had been sinless and that he himself was the Son of God. Had he sinned, death would have had a just claim over him and he would not have risen from the dead. So we have the testimony of his Father in heaven, that he is the Son of God, in whom God is well pleased. What a blessed thing to remember around the Lord's table, and what a glorious truth to think upon, that God is still pleased with his Son, and thus pleased with you and with me, as he sees us as joined to his Son. He can be pleased with us because we're joined to his son. Well, let's turn for a moment before leaving this point to the testimony of the angels from heaven, for they too add to the substance of heaven's testimony. You'll notice in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11 that they bear witness to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Underscore that term Christ. The word Christ is a designation which means one who is anointed. The term Messiah means one who is anointed. Christ and Messiah, basically the same word, the same concept. But not only was he born the Messiah, but in that connection, he was born a Savior. Indeed, the very name Jesus was given to him because the name Jesus means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. And so the angel instructs Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for a very definitive purpose, for he shall save his people from their sins. What wonderful truths to contemplate around the Lord's table this morning! The Messiah has come, he's been identified by God Himself, and his mission has been announced by angels. We'll soon be entering into the Christmas season. Sorry to have to say. Seems to come earlier each year, doesn't it? And uh, But we're in the last quarter of the year now, okay? When many of the Lord's people give special attention to the birth of Christ, sometimes the question is asked, often for the wrong reasons, why can't every day be like Christmas Day? Well, you know, there's a sense in which Christmas comes to us once a month. What do we think upon when we partake of the bread? We certainly meditate on the glorious truth that unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, Isaiah 9, 6. And the testimony of heaven is that this son is God's son, and he was born a savior, one who would save us from our sins. So we have the substance then of heaven's testimony. But would you think with me next on the settings for heaven's testimony? We have in the verses we're considering three very distinct settings in which heaven's testimony is given. We have the baptism of Christ, we have the transfiguration of Christ, and we have the birth of Christ. Each of these settings conveys to us things to remember about Christ around his table. Think with me first on the baptism of Christ. That is indeed something of a mystery, isn't it? Why would Christ be baptized by John? John himself could hardly fathom it. Those who read the account can hardly fathom it, even up to this day, especially when you consider that John's baptism was labeled as a baptism of repentance. Christ had no need to repent. Christ had never sinned. Why then this baptism for Christ? I like the explanation put forward by various commentators that Christ's baptism constituted his official identification with the people that he would represent. You've heard me in days gone by draw the analogy between Christ's baptism and a wedding vow. In his baptism, Christ solemnly and officially takes his people to himself. It's as if he is saying, I do, with regard to being joined to his people. In this respect, one could argue that Our baptism answers to Christ's baptism. Just as he has said, I do with respect to taking his people, so his people in their baptism say, I do with regard to taking Christ. The thing to note in this setting of Christ's baptism is that it represents condescending grace and it represents a phase, if you will, of Christ's humiliation. He condescends so low as to identify and become one with those who had rebelled against him. The appearance of Christ in the flesh wouldn't strike anyone as unusual, and yet the contrast between Christ and those around him couldn't be greater. He pleases his Father while those around him store up wrath unto the day of wrath and revelation of God's righteous judgment. Romans 2, 5. Those around him must be baptized to signify their repentance from their sins, but he is in no need of repentance, but quite the contrary, his baptism fulfills all righteousness. So while physical appearances may be similar, the moral contrasts are nevertheless quite profound. And the thing to note in this condescending action on Christ's part is that his father is pleased with him in this particular setting. In other words, his father is pleased for his son to formally identify with sinners that he'll represent and his father is pleased with him as he takes on that obligation to represent those people. And Doesn't that show you quite plainly how Christ and his father and the Holy Spirit, who lights upon Christ as a dove, are all joined together in manifesting love to such poor, vile, and guilty sinners such as we are? God the Father is pleased with His Son undertaking such a mission, and God the Spirit is pleased to anoint the Son with enabling power to live and die for sinners. How this setting, therefore, should fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving as we think on Christ with the approval of His Father, condescending to identify with sinners. Well, let's think for a moment on the second testimony from heaven. This is the testimony of the Father in the Mount of Transfiguration now. There is a notable contrast here between this setting with the setting of Christ's baptism. At his baptism, there was a display of condescension and humiliation. In the Mount of Transfiguration, there is a display of radiant glory. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light, Matthew writes. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them, Mark writes. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering, Luke writes. You kind of get the impression, don't you, that the gospel writers have to strain themselves to even come up with some kind of an analogy in which to describe the glory that was bursting forth through that appearance of Christ. There is a sense in which this revelation of Christ and his glory sets the aim for the people of God. This is where we're headed. This is how we will one day shine. So John writes in his first epistle, first John chapter three and verse two. Beloved now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Certainly in Christ's transfiguration we gain a glimpse of what the glory of heaven will be like. So these testimonies from heaven are found in the setting of humiliation And in a setting of exaltation and glorification, in both instances, God is pleased with his Son. The final setting in which we hear the testimony of angels shows us what bridges the gap between humiliation and glory. And that's the setting of Christ's birth. Fear not, the angel says to the frightened shepherds, For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Here is what takes lost and undone sinners from humiliation to glory, a Savior who has been born. And I love the one instance in the Gospel of John, where we find Christ making reference. And as far as I know, this is the only place in all the Gospels where you find Jesus actually making reference to his own birth. This is in John chapter 18 and verse 37. He says to Pontius Pilate, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born And for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Christ was born then to bear witness to the truth, he says to Pilate, and the truth he was at that moment bearing witness to was the truth certainly of man's sinfulness There he stood before Pontius Pilate, having endured a sleepless night. He had already been through a mock trial. He had already been spat upon and was buffeted and smitten by his enemies. Soon he would be scourged and mocked further, with a crown of thorns being pressed into his brow, until at last he would be led away and nailed to a cross. What truth does all that bear witness to? Well, he certainly bore witness to the truth, didn't he? That sinners hate God. He also bore witness to the truth that the Son of God should first suffer before entering His glory. He bore witness to the same truth that had already been given from heaven, that He was the Messiah and that He was the Savior of sinners. Here is the setting, then, that bridges the gap For you and me, between humiliation and exaltation, Christ was born. Christ was born to bring glory to God and the salvation of those that would put their trust in him. What a wonderful truth to affirm this morning as we partake of the bread and the cup. This is our time around the Lord's table to add our amen to heaven's testimony concerning Christ. Just as God the Father affirms that he is the Son of God, so do we make such an affirmation by partaking of these communion elements. And if you can't make that Uh, affirmation, then the last thing you would want to do is partake of these elements. Just as God the Father testifies that he's pleased with Christ, indicating that he's satisfied with Christ, so are we given the opportunity to pledge before God that we're satisfied with Christ and grateful that a Savior was born in the city of David that would bear testimony by his life and by his death to the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we've seen something of the substance of heaven's testimony. We've considered the settings in which heaven's testimony has been given. It remains for us to consider briefly the significance of heaven's testimony. And by significance, I'm referring in particular to the applications we can draw from heaven's testimony concerning Christ. In the case, then, of Christ's baptism, we can draw this application. We should identify with the one who has identified with us. We should identify with the one whose identity has been certified by God. I said earlier that there's a sense in which our baptism answers to Christ's baptism, after the analogy of a wedding vow, there's a sense in which we renew those vows each time we gather around the Lord's table. From the larger catechism question, we learn that among the things that are required of the Lord's people in the time of the administration of the Lord's Supper are these. We receive of his fullness We trust in his merits, we rejoice in his love, we give thanks for his grace, and that we renew our covenant with God and love to all the saints. Here then is our duty and our privilege to say to Christ, Lord, we thank thee for thy love, We thank thee for taking us to thyself and representing us by thy love and thy death. We pledge ourselves to thee. We pledge that we believe the testimony that heaven has given concerning thee, that thou art the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. We proclaim to thee and among ourselves that thou art our hope and peace Thou art all our righteousness and most willingly do we confess that we belong to thee, that we are thy purchased possession and we are thy bride. What a glorious privilege then the Lord gives us in giving us this opportunity to renew our covenant with Christ. That's the significance, then, or the application of heaven's testimony concerning his baptism. The significance of heaven's testimony at Christ's transfiguration comes directly to us from God himself. Note again the words of Matthew, chapter 17, verse 5, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased And then underscore these last words, hear ye him. Hear ye him. If God is pleased with Christ, then we should hear Christ. If Christ is the Son of God and God's beloved Son, then we should listen to him. We should go to his word with minds and hearts that are ready and willing to hear and heed what he will say to us. And we should affirm that there is no higher authority than Christ. Oh, that his words would so reach our souls that we would find ourselves compelled to make the same confession that even his enemies were compelled to make when they said, Never man spake like this man. This was the confession of those that were sent to arrest him, who instead found themselves arrested by his words. May this be our experience of him then, when we turn to his word, May we find ourselves captivated with wonder and awe when we hear him preach on things pertaining to the kingdom of heaven, and when we hear him teach us of himself that he is the light of the world, that he is the bread of life, that he is the door through which we must enter into heaven, and that he is the way and the truth and the life. Oh, may we hear him. I said a moment ago, we're in the last quarter of the year, 2023. We'll soon be coming to the end of the year, and soon we'll enter into a new year. I hope that if you haven't been following a Bible reading schedule, now's the time to look ahead, all right? Find one before the year ends, that you'll begin the new year with renewed determination to hear God's direct, or to heed God's direct charge to you, that you should hear His Son. If you need help finding one, let me know. Although it really is pretty simple these days. Just do a a Google search on Bible reading schedules and you'll find some that are uh, fairly easy. You'll find some that are very demanding. And whatever you think you can do, um, it's there. Find it and follow it and determine that you will hear his Son. And then there's the significance of the testimony of the angels and how such a word from heaven ties directly into our time around the Lord's table. The angel says to the shepherds that, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Doesn't that correspond to Christ's own word that pertains to the communion table? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Unto you a Savior is born. Or as Isaiah puts it, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And in the coming of Christ to earth, the way has been made for peace and goodwill toward men. He is our peace. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. He is our peace and the good tidings of the gospel of Christ we have found to be the cause of great joy. Indeed, we have found the joy of salvation. I hope this is the case with you, that you have found it to be the source of your strength. As we meet around this table, therefore, this morning, to remember Christ, his broken body and his shed blood, Let's keep in mind heaven's testimony concerning him. This one that we worship is God come in the flesh. He is the beloved son of his father and his father is well pleased with him. And he is our Savior who has come to bear witness to the truth, the truth that we need him, the truth that he's willing to receive us, the truth that there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Oh, may God bless us then this morning in our remembrance of the one who bears such compelling testimonies from heaven. Let's close then in prayer before we partake of the elements and let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now about to distribute and partake of these elements, we pray, dear God, for the help of thy spirit. May we be intensely focused on thy Son, on who he is and what he's accomplished and how we benefit from that accomplishment. And may we render to him ourselves, our lives, our all. So come, Lord, now and bless us around thy table. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.